Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the Irish Memory Studies Network Distinguished Lecture Series on the theme of Methodologies of Memory. This series is generously funded by the UCD College of Arts and Celtic Studies and the Irish Research Council's New Foundation Scheme. The fifth lecture in this series was given by Professor Daniel Clark, head of the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. Professor Clark's lecture, Memory as Method, The Practice of Memorialization, Memorization in Early Modern Women's Poetry, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. I'm not an expert in memory studies, I should say, from the very beginning, but I have had a sort of a long-standing interest in the functions and practice of memory and, and practices of memorialization and memorization, particularly as they relate to um, early modern women's writers. And I think the, the early modern period is a particularly interesting juncture to sort of think about these kinds of questions. So I suppose I'm starting with a very sort of bold statement, um, a very obvious statement really, which is that memory has a history um, and that it predates, and a history that predates Freud. Um, and whilst memory and re- recollection and recall um, have the power to move and shape actions, memory is also both a structure and a discipline. It's a facility that can be trained, honed and developed, often in ways that we find troublingly mechanistic, um, coming from the modern period back to the early modern period. Rote learning, um, in particular, um, is a a form of of learning that gets a pretty bad rap, um, generally speaking, but it's actually foundational and fundamental to all sorts of early modern um, operations, creative and otherwise. So I'm kind of interested in thinking about this period in relation to questions um, in, in, in terms of information retrieval. I mean, of course, this is one of the information retrieval is one of the primary mechanistic functions of memory, and it's paramount um, in pre-literate or transitional periods. When I say transitional period, periods where the transition is being made from oral cultures to literal cultures, and these things overlap in, in complex ways, but also perhaps uh, in uh, it's also critical um, in an age that finds its moral compass in the dynamic relationship between past and present. Memory then has a history um, as well as constituting the materials of history. The early modern period is profoundly interested in what we might call the techne of memory and how storage and retrieval of ideas might function outside the parameters of what might be held in the human brain. And of course, remember that early moderns have no real physiological understanding um, of the functions of the mind or where the memory might reside or where it might be positioned um, or that it might have a location. I mean, that idea that memory has a location in in particular areas of the brain um, is, is a very interesting one. So memory, as in later periods, serves, um, serves, the, uh, serves to mediate all kinds of human relationships, but more properly structures them as well. Most contracts in the early modern period, for example, are verbal rather than written. So whether or not you get paid for whatever uh, work you've undertaken depends on who remembers what about what was said about that contract. A culture of the world, uh, sorry, a culture of the word will find that reputation also elides with memory. 
Memory is also a cause for celebration, for wonder, but also one means by which acculturation and subject formation is deemed to have taken place or, or not taken place. If you think about Paul William in The uh, Merry Wives of Windsor, who can't remember his Latin grammar, um, it's not terrible in itself, but it marks his exclusion from the prestige culture marked by humanistic learning, which is heavily coded in terms of good memory. Um, and you know, uh, uh, the, the need for a dynamic, flexible command of the art of memory. So, as so often with moments of revolution in technologies of the word, memory in the early modern period is a topic for debate, dissent and uncertainty. Questions relating to the past and its multiple functions in the representation and configuration of the present inevitably press on questions that are central to daily life and touch on key intersections, individual collective, identity community, real, imaginary, interior, exterior. Memory in particular raises troubling questions about ownership, about interiority, about self and its constitution in time, space and place. What kinds of functions might memory have in the age of print? And what are the effects of the creeping consciousness of print, even of the, amongst those who are unable to access it? So print consciousness as opposed to print literacy. What's at stake when a gentry woman, such as Margaret Hobie, listens to a sermon of three hours duration, returns home, eats dinner, and then writes out the sermon, or at least the heads of that sermon? Is this an act or a process? Is it the remembering of content or the argument of the sermon that's at stake or the action of remembering itself? Hobie herself in her uh, diary often deploys the language of storehouse and reuse, so familiar from humanist learning and pedagogy when writing of her pious exercises. Is it the case that the functional parts of acts of memory like this evaporate at the point at which writing is done and the record retrieved and stored, perhaps for future use? In other words, is there memory and then writing and what's the relationship between them? Why, in a period so invested in developed methods of retrieval for written text, is there a corresponding interest in and emphasis upon memory? One answer relevant to my arguments here, I think, must lie in the reconfiguration of classical rhetoric. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, um, memoria, of course, is the fourth uh, canon of rhetoric. Um, it's absolutely critical to the process of formulating an oration and then being able to remember it in order to be able to deliver it. Um, so it's gradual stinkage, the, the, the reconfiguration of classical rhetoric in the period, it's gradual shrinkage to invention of the two canons of invention and style, leaving in particular memory and delivery at the level of theory only. Um, that's, that's a slight overstatement. I mean, it, it, it is used in certain kinds of contexts, or perhaps as a stylistic residue which marks a range of texts, even those not designed for oral performance. You might think of Shakespeare's prodigious interest in modes of repetition and doubling, and presumably some of this is a response to the very high degree of loss in oral transmission. So copious forms of repetition, reiteration, restatement. It's one of the things that students find so problematic about Renaissance literature because it's the same thing over and over and over again in different ways. I will return to repetition, not, because, not least because it's foundational for memory. Formal structured memory or ritual memory in this period is transformed from a masterful talent and a powerful oratorical skill into something which is often discussed at an abstract level, while specific feats of memory often appear to be viewed as moral accomplishments. And this is often carefully distinguished in early modern accounts from recall or the narrative of past events. Roger Ascham, in The Schoolmaster, a text written partly with the royal princesses in mind, describes memory, quote, as so necessary for learning as Plato maketh it a separate and perfect note of itself, and that so principal a note as without it, all other gifts of nature do small service to learning. 
In this, he underlines that within humanist pedagogy, memory is an operation that enables learning, not an end in itself. And this is a position that derives ultimately from Cicero, um, where Cicero in De Oratore discusses the art of memory um, and recounts the story of Themistocles, who says that he would do him a greater favour if he taught him to forget rather than to remember what he wanted. So in other words, that undifferentiated or undiscriminating memory uh, is not useful either. Um, so the idea being that what flows into the mind cannot easily flow out again. Um, I find experience dictates otherwise, but anyway. <laughs> a principle that also underlies early modern approaches to biblical texts. Cicero argues that the aim of a good memory is that ability to, quote, have all of your thoughts fixed in your mind and your entire supply of words neatly arranged. And this is closely related to the art of listening. What they say is not just poured into your ears, but seems inscribed into your mind. So this is very much the idea that, that, that memory is, 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 is a mode of categorization, a way of organizing material. Nature, of course, is the chief source of this asset. Um, so there's a kind of recognition that some people have better memories than others, I think, even in this period. It's, inevitably, it's inevitable, I think, that these classically inflected ideas of memory would make their way from the secular educational context into the area of biblical reading and spiritual self-education. And there was a wide range of guides and manuals devoted to helping pious Christians memorise scripture, for example. As Alec Ryrie notes in his recent book, Being Protestant in Reformation Britain, Mnemonic aids had, quote, an established place in the Protestant book market. There are quite a lot of these, you know, how to remember things, how to, how to find, how to locate the precise verse that you might need to illustrate a moral point or whatever. And these often focused in particular on the Psalms, partly because of its central place in Reformation thought and prayer, and partly because of the, the, the mnemonic effect of music and repetition. Um, any of you who knows the Psalms um, know that even in the Hebrew text, they're very heavily indebted to different modes of repetition and restatement, parallelism and so on. Clearly, the frequency with which the Psalter was heard in a liturgical setting, morning and evening prayer, ensured that the entire cycle of psalms was heard over a 30-day period, together with the various psalms and snippets of psalms used as collects and which made their way into the liturgy itself. So that repetition, that liturgical cycle, was also a factor here and will be seen to be relevant to the Sydney Psalter too. I'll talk more about what the Sydney Psalter is in a minute. Yet a prodigious memory is not in and of itself necessarily seen as a force for good. Rather, it's the mastery of specific content and the particular nature of its assimilation within the early modern subject as potentially constitutive of that subject that seems to structure much discussion. As Ryrie points out, memorising was, quote, an accepted minor sign of personal sanctity with the underlying expectation that scripture would, quote, if planted in the heart, take root there. For some commentators, there simply was no difference between memorization and internalization. Ezekiel Culverwell, for example, in a text entitled A Ready Way, argues, quote, that to fill the head and sow the heart with much heavenly matter is the best way to keep out idle thoughts. I want to suggest that there's a gendered valence to this as well, to the ways in which literate and pious women are often lauded for their memories and to how memory as reproduction and inscription is particularly ideologically useful to containing the disruptive social potential of literate women. Specifically, I want to suggest that Mary Sidney, Councillor Pembroke, uh, sister of Philip Sidney, engages self-consciously self with the ritualising and memorialising facets of memory as she shapes the Sidney Psalter. 
drawing on the conceptualization of both psalms and poetry as acts of memory and displacing ritual repetition with poetic re-rehearsal. It's perhaps not coincidental that her most poetically ambitious work is one that's rooted in the arts and acts of memory and even in its ornate variations constantly recalls a text rooted in Protestant self-examination. For those of you who don't know, um, the Sydney Psalter is um, uh, an English versification of the entirety of the Psalter. Um, but it's a poetic paraphrase. Um, so it's notable, first of all, for its interest in sort of fidelity, I suppose, to the spirit of the Psalms, but secondarily for its interest in versification, particularly um, very ornate and complex forms of versification. Current scholarship, this is a, this is a collaborative work. Um, current scholarship, um, if I could summarise it briefly, um, suggests essentially that uh, this process of uh, paraphrase, if you like, poetic paraphrase, was started probably by Philip Sidney and then completed by Mary Sidney after his death. There's a big disproportion there. Philip Sidney allegedly has, does the first 44 psalms and Mary Sidney does the rest, but she actually goes back and revises his to make it into a kind of composite text. It's kind of complex textual history. There's, I think, about to date, I think there's 17 different manuscripts of this particular text. Um, you don't really need to worry too much about this, although I'm going to talk about variants in a little while, but I've, uh, that's on the handout. So work by critics such as Richard Halpin and Jonathan Goldberg, along with numerous historians of education, has alerted us to the ideological roles that are inaugurated via the institutionalised practice of copying, repetition and rote learning, all of them, of course, culturally linked to memory. Yet these functions are not exclusive to educational institutions, but also turn up in the kinds of text designed to service those institutions or to spread the kinds of cultural capital exchanged there to different audiences, such as the aspiring middle class, tradesmen, merchants and women. At the root of copying culture in early modern England is the process of learning to write, and here too we can see gaps and divisions opening up along gender lines. It's not that the process of learning by means of a copybook is any more or less concerned with the formation of the early modern subject in the case of women, but that the, fun the envisaged functions of that subject are profoundly different, as is the prior construction of that subject's capacity. As Goldberg suggests, early modern educationists concerned with the question of women's education never imagine that these skills will grant them a place of power in the world. Learning to write is often presented as a way of containing or reinscribing these very limitations. As Goldberg notes, the kinds of institutions where women might learn to write were by definition marginal, but he doesn't take on board the possibility of the autodidact woman or of the woman being informally instructed within the home. The art of writing, by which William Billingsley, for example, means the process of instruction through copying, is no more than a technology that aids memory, specifically when writing is to be taught to women, and this is number one on the sheet. And if any art be commendable in a woman, I speak not of their ordinary works wrought with a needle wherein they excel, it is this of writing, whereby they, commonly not having the best memories, especially concerning matters of moment, may commit many worthy and excellent things to writing, which may occasionally minister unto them matter of much solace. The contrast with needlework is telling, since that involved a radically different relationship in terms of copying, the replication of patterns or visual symbols and occasionally key texts for, quote, profit, pleasure, ornament, as John Taylor suggests. 
Despite this, the learning of needlecraft is judged against the ease or difficulty of learning letters, namely the practice repeatedly alluded to in writing manuals of tracing over the letters of the copybook until they are learned, remembered not just as a sign but as a mechanical and physical action. Still have kids learn to write now. Um, endlessly. Um, and this is the second quotation on the sheet. And though our country everywhere is filled with ladies and with gentlewomen skilled in this rare art, yet here, yet here they may discern some things to teach them if they list to learn. And as this book some cunning works doth teach, to ha- too hard for mean capacities to reach. So for weak learners, other works here be as plain and easy as our ABC. Um, this is from Taylor's um, book, uh, the, the Writing Schoolmaster. The association between copying and memory, as Billingley indicates, is sorry, it's from Taylor, um, is um, is not simply a matter of mutually reinforcing training, but one where memory will function via the medium of writing as a kind of repository, less of materials to be used, but of ideas that the virtuous woman will identify with, in which she will see herself reflected, and upon which she will model her conduct. In this sense, Goldberg's comment that, quote, women are the most recalcitrant site for the formation of memory that copying envisages is quite correct, for it enables the ongoing process of copying itself to take the place of the copious or productive memory, consigning her to the circular repetition of the same ideological injunctions. In this view, she is condemned always to copy and never to imitate. When I say imitate, I'm thinking of the rhetorical process of imitatio. Um, on which all sorts of value is conferred. Whilst Goldberg, in relation to this example, alerts us to the class hierarchies that the circuit of copy reproduces, it's clear, too, that through this relationship between copying memory and virtue, in other words, female virtue consists in the repetition of worthy models, practices and texts, that a gender hierarchy is being reproduced as well. And it's not just Billingsley who rehearses this connection in early modern writing manuals. Here, just as a further illustration, is John Davis of Hereford. And this, he's an interesting one, because he's himself hardly antithetical to the idea of female authorship. I mean, he turns up as a... Uh, he, he, he uses... Um, he addresses female patrons and so on and so forth, um, and himself taught writing to a, a couple of uh, notable, noble women. So he's not antithetical to the idea of female authorship, um, but he's writing about women and the fact that they're taught the italic hand rather than the secretary, which he calls Roman, a relationship that he acknowledges as culturally, culturally constructed. This is number three. Women are persuaded that the dull-set Roman is the woman's right hand, but nothing less, for women naturally have as much facility in joining and are as nimble-handed in all manual qualities as men. Many of them are poets and indict in verse as well as prose with rare commendation. Then, in their compositions, should they use to take up the pen at every letter, they had need, ha- they, they had need to have good memories, lest their invention should be lost ere they could record it with their pen. So what he's thinking about is the, the, the letter formation, where you pick the pen up off the page and then you move to the next letter and you move to the next letter rather than uh, a flowing cursive which aids invention. So the point being here, of course, that women do not have good memories and thus do lose their invention. Hence, the cycle of copy itself depends upon a prior construction of woman, in this case a kind of biological or somatic construction. It's interesting, I think, that the recent, and this, is, this series is obviously a, a major part of that, but the, the, the reinvigoration of the field, now designation of memory studies, coincides, as the Renaissance period does, with another wholesale technological shift in how we store, access and retrieve information, information that would once have been committed to memory or at least to paper. 
This is one of the framing contexts, um, I suppose, for a range of projects. This one included alongside a perception that key events often seem to be definitive of emergent identity are passing out of living memory. This kind of history has often been disinclined to consider personal memories, however heavily shaped they might be by collective narratives, to eschew what we might now think of as testimony. The habitual engagement with the past to the end of illuminating present issues or concerns requires a head-on confrontation with the vicissitudes of textual and historical memory, the process of recall requiring a motivated intervention in the material traces of the past, a selective appropriation of the inherited record. Now, for a figure like Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke, um, memory is tied to a particular kind of ideological narrative, one that takes in kin, politics and belief and positions her to the heir, as the heir to these positions. For those of you who don't know much about her, um, Philip Sidney dies in 1586 um, along with um, her parents um, and the Sydneys really kind of represent a, a particular sort of ideological position in terms of a, a, a sort of a, a highly placed but fairly radical Protestantism and interventionist um, stance on, on Protestantism. And really by the time you get to the 1590s, all of the kind of key figures, the, the first generation, if you like, um, of those figures um, are, are dead, um, really with the exception of Mary Sidney herself. So she kind of sees herself um, as mediating that past, medi mediating that legacy um, for a new audience in certain kinds of ways. Um, not only is she the living exemplification of Sydney values, her position as survivor requires her to take ownership of the past as well as the future. In fact, futurity is predicated on memory, mediated through the nodal figure um, of uh, Sir Philip himself. And it's precisely this trajectory that's traced when Mary Sidney confronts Queen Elizabeth with the model of David. When the Psalter is completed in 1599, um, there's a, beautifully, um, a, a beautifully produced manuscript um, which was to be presented to Elizabeth I. It never happened. Um, but with it is a dedicatory verse which makes some quite pointed um, kind of political interventions in relation to um, what she sees as Elizabeth's um, sort of backpedalling, I suppose, on, particularly on, on Europe in relation to military intervention and various other kinds of things. Um, so, I mean, confronts, I'm sort of overstating it slightly, it's not exactly a conference, fairly subtle confrontation, but anyway, um, but uses the model of David, using the absented, utilising the absented body of her brother as the key ligature in this encounter between past and present, on a textual ground, i.e. the Psalter, that transcends all temporal considerations except for the stylistic. So by the late 1580s, when Mary Sidney is working on the Psalter and other Sidney-related projects, she'd suffered a series of bereavements, brothers, parents, daughter, which must have intensified her sense of memory and its importance, as well as having witnessed the loss of the first generation of Protestants in her kinship network. Uh, Leicester dies in 1588, Huntingdon in 1595, Warwick in 1590. The relationship between memory and generation is relatively unexplored, although it's a point much debated more, gen more generally in memory studies where the life of a familial memory is thought to be about 40 to 60 years. For Sydney, though, the act of recreating the Psalter is an act that reactivates the radical commitments of her forebears, as well as using the same model of service that her male relatives had had, not unproblematically, assumed shaped their role and relationship to their monarch. As the Renaissance starts to move to the remembrance of real historical agents as exemplars for the living, the function of memory appears to loom large. Not only is the effective 
functioning of example dependent upon an act of recall and the shortening of the distance between then and now, the good functioning of memory appears as a sign or metaphor for female intellectual virtue. It turns up with surprising frequency in texts seeking to praise literate women for their moral actions, almost as tropological as the tale of Simonides. John Aubrey notes Catherine Phillips' powers of recall. Uh, when she was little, he says, she took sermons verbatim. Um, and also, quote, wrote out verses in inns or mottos in windows in her table book. I love this detail. It's Catherine Phillips sitting in the pub writing down the motto on the window. Um, and uh, another example, the mother of the Earl of Danby, Aubrey says, I've heard my father's mother say that she had Chaucer at her fingers' ends. And I, I'm really curious about what this term, I mean, I know literally what, you know, to have something at your fingers' me- ends means. You know, it literally means that you know it thoroughly and completely. But I wonder where it comes from. I'm not quite sure what the derivation of it. I couldn't find out anything about where it comes from. Is it from pointing at things? It's it's a really interesting one. Anyway, come back to that. Um, Edward Rainbow um, commends Susanna, the Countess of Suffolk, for her ability, again, to recall sermons verbatim, such that on Monday she could write down the previous day's sermon, quote, so perfectly that little was wanting in the very words wherein it was delivered. There's many further examples of this kind of thing that commend women's textual engagement through the figure of the prodigious but ostentatiously non-selective memory. These are not selective acts of memory, they're verbatim, you remember the whole thing. John Donne um, is unusual in his scepticism in the face of such feats of memory, and this is uh, quotation four. An artificer of this city brought his child to me to admire, as truly there was much reason of the capacity, the memory, especially of the child. It was but a girl and not above nine years of age. We could scarce propose any verse of any book or chapter of the Bible, but that that child would go forward without book. I began to catechise this child, and truly, she understood nothing of the Trinity, nothing of any of those fundamental points which must save us, and the wonder was doubled, how she knew so much, how so little. Um, this is a kind of a, um, this, is a this is a rather strange um, example, rather extreme example, um, of somebody um, whose acts of memory are, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very strange one. But the unusual feature of this particular event is Dunn's unease at her lack of understanding, more usually the simple fact of repetition and therefore the implied homology between repeater or copier and text is sufficient testimony to exemplary virtue. Edward Rainbow's funeral sermon on Lady Anne Clifford, Countess of Pembroke, Dorset and Montgomery, printed in 1677 and she died the previous year, might stand in for many such representations. He speaks of her prime and elegant wit, well seen in all human learning and afterwards devoted to the study of divinity and her capacity for discourse um, within, with, with the whole social spectrum. And this conversational skill is seen to depend upon learning and the capacity to access such learning through memory. And this is number five on the sheet. Many of you are familiar with this. Um, That she might better do. She would frequently bring out of the rich storehouse of her memory, again, it's a very common metaphor, things new and old, sentences or sayings of remark which she had read or learned out of authors, and with these her wall, her bed, her hangings and furniture must be adorned, causing her servants to write them in papers and her maids to pin them up, that she or they, in the time of their dressing, or as occasion served, might remember and make their descants upon them. So that, though as she had not many books in her chamber, yet it was dressed up with the flowers of a library. 
Two key ideas are brought together here. First, the commonplace of the memory as a storehouse, as a receptacle, or a spatial metaphor for the operations of memory for the purposes of retrieval, one that derives ultimately from rhetorical and ars memoria techniques, um, and one incidentally rejected by contemporary psychological and neuroscientific research. It's significant that what Clifford is represented as memorising are, quote, sentences or sayings of remark, namely sententiae or adages of the kind promoted by Erasmus and humanist education. And I think this is a nice example of the ways in which pedagogical method can be found in non-institutional sites, even in the intimate space of the bedchamber. The second key point is the moral efficacy of memory, namely that what she learns and stores up is of ethical value in the process of constituting a moral virtuous self. This assertion is strengthened here by the locations of these sayings in the bedchamber. So, of course, instead of focusing on the body and its adornment, Clifford is concerned with the cultivation of morality through the exercise of memory. So when they're dressing, they're not focusing on what they're going to look like, they're focusing on their, their moral improvement. The purpose of reading which she had read or learned out of authors is to find moral sayings, and this is of a piece with moralist recommendations that women engage in copying to the end of fixing moral precepts firmly in the mind, as Vives recommends in Book One of The Education of a Christian Woman. When she learns to write, do not have her imitate idle verses of vain and frivolous ditties, but rather some grave saying or a wise and holy sentiment from the holy scriptures or the writings of philosophers, which should be copied out many times so that they will remain firmly fixed in the memory. Clifford, we just talked about, is represented through the figure of Solomon, substituting scriptural knowledge uh, for material wealth, the sayings of wisdom, uh, which he determined to be more precious than rubies. These were strewed about her chambers. The connection between Clifford and the memorialization of scripture is frequently inscribed in the materials that constitute her archive. Um, for example, um, in uh, Amelia Lanyard's uh, poem um, about Clifford, the description of Cookham, the, the feminocentric paradise is marked by the singing of psalms. With lovely David, you did often sing his holy hymns to heaven's eternal king, and in sweet music did your soul delight to sound his praises morning, noon and night. Um, there's a wonderful um, picture associated with Clifford called The Great Picture, where Clifford's sort of Clifford at various ages, um, surrounded by her books um, and also um, evidence of her extended uh, legal battle to have this estate conferred upon her rather than her uncle. So she's a very interesting figure. But in The Great Picture at Appleby, the Countess of Cumberland is represented with her hand resting on the Book of Psalms. And throughout her diaries, she turns to verses of the Psalms to express herself at moments of severe emotional crisis. So again, it's this idea that the, the, the Psalter is something that is in her memory, out of which she can kind of pull uh, relevant quotations, or even, interestingly, fragments of quotations. It's not necessarily the full quotation that's used. It's often fragments. So, in other words, the assumption is that this text is sufficiently well-known and stored in memory for it not to require full iteration um, every time round. Micheline White, in uh, her book uh, English Women, Religion and Textual Production, sees in the portrait of Lady Margaret a visual allusion uh, to the Van der Pass portrait of Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke. This is a very famous picture of uh, the Countess of Pembroke holding uh, a book of psalms, um, her book of psalms, David's book of psalms. Um, so it's an intriguing evocation, I think, of the memory of a forebear and a kinswoman um, through the specific uh, use of the book of psalms. 
Okay, so the Book of Psalms then um, holds a very particular and specific place in the early modern conceptualization of memory and its functions, mastery of its patterns of repetition frequently being held up as a sign of exemplary spiritual and moral conduct. The Psalms themselves, of course, are complex acts of remembrance, not only of spiritual suffering, but also of moments of exile and reconciliation, um, Psalm 137, for example. Resonance is only compounded by the application of specific psalms to moments of personal and political crisis. To evoke, cite or repeat a psalm is often metonymic in its effects, the textual locus only being the point of origin, and I'll come back to this. In important ways, not least of them practical, the book of psalms is the ultimate iterative text, designed not so much to be read through, although the narrative arc of the Psalter has generic affinities of various kinds, particularly with epic, but read over and over and over and over. It has a linear logic, um, and this is compounded by um, such aids to memory retrieval that, that turn up, for example, in this period. So compounded by the Geneva Bi- Geneva's Bible innovation of verse numbers, for example, um, which enables you to, to put things together in particular ways. Um, as well as chapter numbers. But it also functions cyclically and typologically, both within the book itself and more broadly within the Bible as a whole. What I want to suggest here is that Sydney, Mary Sidney's version of the Psalter is profoundly indebted both to acts of memory, uh, remembering, recall, reworking, rewriting, and also to an act of memorialisation. And that act of memorialisation is in the first instance to her brother, but more broadly to the Sydney uh, kinship network. And that both key elements are achieved through the stylistic and tropological devices of repetition. One of the things that distinguishes the Sydney Psalter from its many predecessors and analogues is precisely its distance from either the content or the usage of the liturgical Psalter. And for many critics, this difference lies at the heart of Mary Sidney's conscious decision not to circulate it in print, namely that it transgresses certain ideals about the use to which scripture might be put, that its commitment to poetic invention undermines its Protestant allegiance and so on. But I want to suggest that the Sidney Salter's power and effective lies precisely in the assumption that readers of the psalm versions would have the Coverdale or Great Bible versions fixed firmly in their memories, to which the variations and reworkings of the Sidney Salter might bear a kind of fugal relationship, theme and variation, if you, if you wish. These earlier versions and translations are the kind of aural palimpsest that underlies the entire endeavour. The book as a whole, the book of Psalms, has a deep-seated and particular relationship to memory, as the examples I've outlined above suggest. But the body of the Psalms themselves reveal a stylistic investment in the act of memory encoded at the level of style and form. Many of the Psalms use repetition and restatement in significant ways, and overall it might be seen as a kind of template for certain kinds of mnemonic techniques, which the Counts of Pembroke, interestingly, is not only at pains to retain, but sometimes adds. So Psalm 119, those of you who are familiar with the Psalter will know that Psalm 119 is the incredibly long psalm based around the, the Hebrew alphabet, the various sections based around the Hebrew alphabet. So it's an alphabetic acrostic, one of, e- one, one of each for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each consisting of eight verses. The Countess of Pembroke uses four sestets for each letter, alliterating the opening word. So C, confer, O Lord, E, explain, O Lord, Q, quit and clear from doing wrong, and so on. Each section uses a different stanzaic form. This is not a feature of Coverdale's version, which would have been the form of psalms encountered in the Book of Common Prayer, more or less, we can argue about that. But Psalm 111, similarly, is an acrostic in Hebrew, 
a pattern which Sidney preserves. Interestingly, is a poem that's self-reflexive about the acts and processes of praise. Quote, at home abroad, most willingly I will bestow on God my praises utmost skill, chanting his works, works of unmatched might, deemed so by them who in their search delight. It would be fascinating to have a version from manuscript B to compare. Um, I should just explain, um, there's a complex um, textual history um, to the Psalter, um, but what we, when I've, I'm going to talk about two manuscripts, primarily A and B. Um, a is the presentation copy that I referred to, the one that was allegedly going to be presented to Elizabeth I. So if you like, it's a kind of a clean copy. Um, if you're interested in such things, you might argue that it represents final intention. I, I wouldn't argue that, but that's a debate for another day. Um, manuscript B um, is a working copy, um, and it really represents um, the, the, the... You can see very clearly from it, or aspects of it, you can see from it what Mary Sidney's working methods are. And comparing the two is quite interesting, because quite often you can see that she's taken a kind of a private idea and worked it towards a kind of a public articulation. You can also see the ways in which, and it's important from my purposes, because you can see the ways in which her initial kind of cuts at paraphrasing the Psalms are so heavily indebted to the Book of Common Prayer version that she would have known by heart. Um, So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about B. Um, so her usual pattern then um, when, when producing these paraphrases is to start with a paraphrase of the English Book of Common Prayer version um, and successively work it up into something of increasingly poetic and formal complexity. Sydney's clearly intrigued by the formal challenge presented, but it's nonetheless fascinating that she specifically preserves a feature that was well known for its memory-jogging powers when none of her sources um, do so. In the Hebrew text, Psalms 112 and 145 are also acrostic. Um, and again, um, the one on the sheet here so it was part, uh, convenient that it's so short as well. Um, Psalm 117 um, acts independently, as it were, of its sources, but again reveals an interest in memory devices. So the first um, thing there is um, from Coverdale: "Oh, praise the Lord, all ye heathen; praise Him, all ye nations, for His merciful kindness is ever more and more towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever." Praise the Lord. And then we have manuscript A, which is the final version. If you just look down the left-hand side, um, you'll see the acrostic there. I won't go through it. And then the one at the bottom uh, is from manuscript B. So you can see the way in which she started. She she started with the the acrostic as the organising principle um, and then has kind of worked up to other levels of kind of formal realisation. So just as important as these obvious signs of interest in the art of memory is the fact that the text always carries within it, in performance and in repetition, the remembered traces of what it displaces, varies or imitates, as well as being an act of remembrance in itself, incorporating ideas of exile, loss, the memory of God's presence. As Emma O'Donnell has argued, the liturgical community that recites the Psalms is transformed through the liturgical engagement with the text, which awakens in the community a depth of religious experience that goes beyond the purely textual content of the Psalms. The self-conscious movement away from liturgy and from ritual has formed a very significant strand in criticism on the Psalms, a position presented most convincingly by Ronald Green, whose analysis is focused on those Psalms paraphrased by Philip. If, however, the purpose is only poetic, why commit to the paraphrase of the entire cycle? Other poets who treated the text as poems tended to focus their attention on specific 
psalms, um, often uh, penitential psalms, but not always, limited in number. Um, thinking of Anne Locke writing her series of meditations on Psalm 51. So the notion of the entire cycle seems to presuppose important patterns, as well as pinpointing the iterative potential inevitably contained in the liturgy itself, where morning and evening prayer facilitates the monthly recitation of the complete Psalter, whether that's undertaken at church or more frequently within the household. The order appointed in the Book of Common Prayer is clearly very easily adapted to domestic use, and we have plenty of evidence, Hobie and Clifford, who I've already cited amongst others, of the recitation or singing of psalms in household settings. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. Now, to know what psalm shall be read every day, look in the calendar, the number that is appointed for the psalms, and then find the same number in this table, and upon that number shall you see what psalm shall be said at morning and evening prayer. So, you don't have to remember, you just look it up on a chart. Um, the psalms themselves are, of course, embroiled in notions of remembrance, thematically and stylistically, and are given a central place within the liturgy, which very pointedly articulates its Eucharistic theology as being one of remembrance and symbolic reenactment. The body of blood of Christ to be taken of them in the remembrance of this most fruitful and glorious passion, do this in remembrance of me. A few, and this is obviously, the, the, the point about remembrance is obviously specifically pointed in the Protestant context. Um, a few brief examples will make the point, although often in the Psalter memory's limitations are explored alongside its benefits. In Psalm 77, a cry to God for help, the speaker calls to God in the midst of despair. All comfort fled my soul, yea, God to mind I called, yea, calling, yet calling God to mind my thoughts could not appease. At length with turned thought anew I fell to think upon the ancient times, upon the years of old. Yea, to my mind was brought and in my heart did sink what in my former rhymes myself of thee had sold. So time here is experienced liturgically, and arguably the very complex and precise metrical schemes and usage of formal patterns is a way to reinscribe the features of liturgy at the level of the written text. Um, a small handful of Sydney psalms turn up set to music, not very many, but the evidence we have of their reception suggests that they were experienced primarily textually rather than hourly, although the hourly context does seem to be omnipresent. Poetic performance displaces and builds upon liturgical performance, which is always to be understood. These acts of remembrance have a powerful valence in relation to Mary Sidney's representation of the Sidney Psalter as a means for the memorialization of her brother and his legacy. Okay, so I think it's widely acknowledged that without her brother's example and early death, it's unlikely that Mary Sidney would have engaged in such extensive literary production or perhaps such public literary production. The notion of the memorial function of the Psalter has been much to the fore in Sydney criticism of late, um, perhaps slightly more palatable than the older meddler and secondariness arguments. Gavin Alexander's elegant formulation might stand in for many such statement. Um, her own writing, although I find it really interesting that he completely writes out her agency in this sentence, but anyway. Her own writing, which chose to occupy... Interesting, isn't it? She chose to. Um, her own writing, which chose to occupy the threshold of Sydney's death and afterlife and to concern itself with death and dying. The Psalter itself, in terms of content, has a very strong preoccupation with affliction, loss and comfort. But the reworking of the substance of the Psalms into specifically poetic artefacts also serves to ally the enterprise with a quite different strain in poetic memorialisation, namely the idea of the Sydney Psalter as a poetic act of memory. 
This model draws upon a Horatian precedent, um, one that's held up repeatedly as a model justifying poetic endeavour in early modern culture. Shakespeare, Daniel, the, the familiar uh, model of, of verse as a form of a, mo- of, a, a verse as monument as a means of securing the afterlife of a beloved individual, but also of a, of a poetic style. There are multiple statements throughout the Psalter that suggest the capacity of poetry to transcend time, um, an impulse that's particularly profound in the case of divine poetry. Unlike our own great legatee, George Herbert, Pembroke has an unwavering belief in the capacity of poetry to do what she believes it should. With skilful song, his praises sing on sacred throne, not knowing end. Thank you.